Welcome to this edition of UCLA Anderson Forecast Director Podcast. Uh, I'm Jun Li. I'm an economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast. Today, I'm very excited to have Professor uh, Mark Curtis and Professor Iona Marinescu as our guest speakers. Uh, thank you both for being here today. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us. So Mark is a professor at Wake Forest University economics department. He studies environmental energy and labor economics to inform public policy. Uh, professor Ioana Marinescu is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. She is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. She studies the labor market and has been a speaker before on our podcast. So today, I'd like to focus on your recent paper, which I found so insightful. The title of your paper is Green Jobs in the United States. What are they and where are they? Uh, so Mark and Elna, could one of you start by explaining your motivation and give us a quick summary of your paper uh, in a few sentences? Yes, so, you know, there's been lately a growth of green jobs and also more policy interest uh, in this area. So we are really interested in trying to measure uh, green jobs a little bit better, the number of green jobs and their characteristics. And it turns out it's not so easy uh, to do that with the typical statistics that are available and data sets that are available out there. So what we do here is we use data uh, from online job vacancies, which is from burning glass technologies. And so this job vacancy data allows us to define uh, green jobs based on firms' own definition of what the job is. And uh, also, you know, the, the classification allows us to go back in time to measure it from the beginning of when firms were uh, talking about those green jobs, when they were advertising the jobs. And, you know, briefly, uh, we find that green energy jobs tend to, uh, by the way, by green energy, just to clarify, we mean solar and wind. And so for solar jobs, we find that they're disproportionately in sales and for wind jobs that they're disproportionately in blue collar uh, types of uh, jobs and industries, in particular in installa installation and maintenance and in manufacturing. And then we also look uh, into how well these jobs are paid. And we find that green energy jobs are created in occupations that pay 20% higher wages. And interestingly, this pay premium is even higher for less educated workers. Uh, or rather for less educated, for jobs that require less education, just a high school degree and not, not more. And uh, finally, we also find like in terms of the geography of green jobs that these green jobs are disproportionately located in markets that are currently um, overrepresented in terms of fossil fuel production. So basically, uh, if you look for a green job, you're more likely to find it in areas where they also have fossil fuel jobs. So that's uh, our basic findings. Great, thank you. Uh, so to help our listeners have a clearer understanding of green jobs, could you please explain how you uh, de define uh -huh. and identify green jobs in detail? Uh, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, identifying green jobs, as you want to just mention, this has been pretty challenging in the past. I think uh, we have this kind of vague concept of what a green job is, but it's been very difficult to actually you know, kind of have a precise way of, of measuring it. Uh, and this has become a political issue in the past, even, you know, do we do we count, uh, you know, 
uh, bicycle repairmen? Do we count the you know the folks that pick up your trash, right? I mean, what what is counted as a, as, a, as a green job? And so for this paper, we really wanted to just narrow it in on something that we feel like is is relatively uncontroversial in terms of what a green job is, and also an area that you know we're seeing really big growth in. So the two things that we focused on are solar and wind jobs, and uh, but even you know if we're going to narrow it that far down it's it's difficult to say with the existing data identify what are solar and wind jobs so if you look at you know even kind of the best census data that you can get does not have great industry and occupational ways to measure solar and wind jobs they tend to fall into other buckets and so it's hard to actually extract which of those jobs are solar and wind so what's really nice about what we can do with this paper is uh, we are using job postings uh, from the actual firms themselves. So um, together with a, a company um, called Lightcast, which uh, scrapes and uh, formerly burning uh, formerly burning glass, now Lightcast, they scrape um, online job postings and are able to uh, classify a bunch of different uh, categories based on those job postings. So within those job postings, we have the job title, we have the industry, we have the occupation, we have the firm name, we have the location, a number of additional characteristics about that are within that posting, the posting itself. Uh, and interestingly, interestingly, and importantly for this paper, they list the skills slash task that workers are expected to, to do and to have. Um, and so we use the, uh, so to identify solar and wind jobs, we really focus on scraping uh, these categories for the words solar, wind and photovoltaic. Um, so we have to be care a little bit careful with the types of jobs that we have a, a number of kind of uh, false positives. When you run this for the first time, you get like woodwind instruments and things like that that you don't obviously don't want. So we had to be a little bit careful with, with how we did that. And there was a number of iterations to get to this point. But the, the main way that we do this is we first look at the job title. We say, is the word solar, wind, or photovoltaic in the job title? If so, it's going to be classified as a green job. Next, we look at the occupation that is listed, and uh, if the occupation has you know, solar, wind, photovoltaic, we're gonna we're gonna um, document it as a green job, and then finally we're gonna use the um, skills and task to look for uh, green jobs. So if you list that maybe you're an electrician, right, but it lists that you can do solar installation, right, as a skill or a task, we're gonna count that as a green job, uh, and then finally we're gonna use some information about firms. So if we see that. Uh, greater than 40% of the workers within a firm are doing or what we call green jobs and either solar or wind, then we're going to count then we're going to count all of those workers in the firm uh, as a as a green job. So that's kind of the primarily primarily the way that we go through um, classifying and, do and documenting the green jobs. Thank you so much, Professor uh, Mark Curtis. Uh, that's a great explanation. Uh, so my next question is for you, uh, Yona. Pertaining to green jobs, you define them as solar and wind jobs, and you exclude other types of green jobs, uh, for example, hydropower. And I'm curious as to why. Does it have anything to do with the fact that though hydropower captures a large percentage of green energy generation, it actually creates less jobs in the workforce? So uh, with so so hydropower is is certainly you know a 
uh, a, a a green type of inter, inter, uh, energy and electricity um, uh, production, right? So there, there's very very little, if any, carbon emissions that are that are coming when you when you use hydropower. So it's certainly a, a green uh, type. I think the the reason that we uh, did not focus on hydropower, and I think we could have, um, is that you know hydropower has been pretty flat over the past say uh, ten years. Um, we've in some studies they show that you know e even right now there's you know roughly maybe 60,000 jobs that are in hydropower right now we're looking at maybe you know at least twice that many in wind um you know uh, we're up to 350,000 solar jobs by by a number of measures right now and so you know i think hydropower is not seeing the big increase and i think as we were thinking about this paper we were largely thinking about um, studying places where there really are big structural changes in the economy. And, and at least right now, hydropower is not at that place. Uh, there are some subsidies that are coming in um, with the new Inflation Reduction Act, but uh, for hydropower specifically, but at least over the past 10 years, hydropower has been pretty, pretty steady and you're not seeing a big increase in it. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So also you mentioned that in your paper, uh, the green jobs are identified from a data set, a fantastic data set on job postings. And to what extent are jobs from these postings representative for actual jobs of the overall, overall employment in the economy? Yes, so you know when you look at uh, job postings, it's important to keep in mind that we are indeed talking about job postings, and so the meaning of the data is the flow of jobs. So, like the new jobs that are being created, or potentially people who are being replaced. Uh, so that's important to keep in mind. But in terms of whether it's representative of the economy in general, this data set from Burning Glass has been used by a number of researchers, and there's multiple papers comparing it to other more representative data, from example, for example, from the uh, journal, um, sorry, the JOLTS, which is a, a survey of um, uh, job openings and vacancies. This, this is an official representative survey, and it's very similar to that. So that's the most comparable because this is about job openings. And then we can just look at whether the jobs in there are similar in terms of um, occupation and industry and location uh, to other um, data sets like the current population survey, which is used to compute the unemployment rate or the occupational employment statistics. And people have found that the jobs in this data set are broadly similar along all these dimensions uh, to these more representative data sets. And I also want to take this opportunity to say that Part of what's cool with this particular data set is the idea of um, dynamic taxonomy of data. And so that's been important because in this data set, um, when there is a, um, you know, a new job title that is, uh, being, uh, that is appearing, if it happens to be synonym with something else that was happening before, you know, the naming can change a little bit, but over time, they always updated backwards so that, you know, once the job was appearing for the first time, we have a chance to capture it. Whereas uh, occupational classifications, they are not backward looking. So, you know, maybe now we created a solar installer occupation and it's going to appear in our regular data, but only once it's been created, nobody's gonna go back and look for those people, you know, in, in the past. And so that's an advantage of our of our the data that we use that we can better capture the dynamic of growth in those types of jobs over time. Thank you for the explanation. I think that's a much more accurate and uh, creative way to identify green jobs. 
And also, uh, I know that you find a couple really interesting things about grid jobs when doing your analysis. Could one of you start by telling us some of your findings? Sure, let me talk a little bit about, uh, we have what we've done is we've compared the green jobs against solar and wind uh, in terms of occupation and industry to all other jobs as well as to fossil uh, fuel jobs. And what we find is that uh, the solar jobs and the wind jobs are very special in the sense that solar jobs, for example, about a third of them are in sales, uh, which is a very high proportion compared to all jobs in the economy. And that for wind jobs, about 50% of them are in uh, installation and maintenance types of occupations, so kind of blue collar uh, occupations, which again is very atypical for uh, the rest of the economy. And then when you compare them to fossil fuel jobs, fossil fuel jobs are actually more similar to you know, regular, quote unquote, the rest of the jobs. No, they're not exactly the same, but they're more similar. Fossil fuel jobs are more similar. And uh, these green jobs, uh, wind and solar, are special in particular because of their high share of blue collar um, uh, work. And uh, finally, we've also looked at pay, as I was mentioning uh, earlier. And what we do there is, so it turns out one limitation of our data is that we have limited information on pay because most firms don't say in their posting exactly what they're going to pay. So in order to get at roughly, you know, what does this job pay, we match uh, each job with the pay in the occupation that the, that the job is in. So given that, you know, this job belongs to a very specific occupation, what is the average pay in this occupation based on representative data. So this way we can match a pay to each uh, each job. So using that, we find that uh, these green jobs pay 20% more than other jobs, again, based on what occupations uh, they are situated in. And what's uh, further even, even more interesting is that you know, you, you might think that they pay more because maybe they require higher education or they have some other, you know, requirements that make them hard for people to get. But in fact, we find that uh, even when you restrict to jobs that require only a high school degree, so relatively, you know, uh, jobs that require less formal education, this premium uh, is even higher. It's 34% more. So among jobs that only require high school education, uh, the green jobs are created in the kinds of occupations that pay 33% more than other occupations for these types of, uh, of workers. So it's very interesting to see um, that, again, green jobs are generally created in higher paying occupations. And this, uh, you know, bent toward more pay is even more true for less educated workers. I see. Thank you. So before I read your paper, I didn't realize green jobs uh, typically get paid more than other kind of jobs. I think that's a good news for the economy. Um, so uh, I, I think that you also found something really interesting that uh, you find areas rich in pollution intensive jobs are also rich in green jobs. Uh, can you tell us why do you think that is? Uh, well, it is. So it is. That's absolutely right. So you do see that uh, the green jobs that we identify, solar wind jobs, are much more likely to be located in geographic regions that have high amounts of uh, fossil fuel employment. Uh, why is that the case? I, you know, I think it's just sheer luck, honestly. I mean, uh, kind of a geographic luck, right? So I, I think that um, places where there are 
uh, significant amounts of oil reserves um, also are places where the sunshine, right? And and I, and I think that it's a um, kind of a nice uh, geographic phenomena that that's the that that, that is the, that is the case. Um, so yes, yeah, so that that's a big uh, a big finding. You know, we we observe uh, really strong presence of solar and wind jobs in in places like uh, Texas um, uh, and Oklahoma. We also observe them in in places like Iowa and, and uh, Minnesota. The Iowa and Minnesota are going to be more wind jobs. Uh, there's a lot of solar, of course, in um, other places as well, right? So like California, uh, Nevada, places that are not as known for um, their fossil fuel production. But, you know, the, the fact that we do observe a lot of jobs in solar and wind that are uh, in places, particularly in the middle of the country, with high amounts of fossil fuel is is encouraging. Um, uh, and, you know, yeah, on average, that's speculate. the case. Mark, just to speculate, it may also be, but we can't tell from our paper, but it may be that there are some uh, reasons for firms. So, you know, if there are firms that are energy firms, many of them invest in multiple types of energy. And so if it happens that the conditions are there, like in Texas, they have a lot of sun and there's already presence of fossil fuel energy firms. It could be that there is already uh, at the firm level an infrastructure to expand to other types of energy. So it's possible that part of it, uh, uh, you know, is driven by a firm level phenomenon and the ability to uh, for energy firms to expand the, the, their portfolio across different types of energy. That, that's a great point. That's something I've been thinking a lot about, actually, is, is how firms themselves are part of the drivers of this transition. Um, that you do see a lot of within firm movement from fossil fuels to to solar, and I think that's something that we're um, that I think is really interesting. That you know firms that are in the energy sector already are likely to, you know are kind of well positioned to be making this uh, type of transition. I was just kind of anecdotally, I was just talking to a student of mine, um, and he was saying that his father has been essentially an oil executive's entire life in in, in Houston. Um, and he just recently got a job for a, a solar company in in, uh, in Houston, and I was saying that he he alone, his family alone marks the transition from uh, uh, from 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 uh, from fossil fuels to renewables. Yeah, yeah, sounds yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking maybe that could also uh, relate to uh, state level renewable energy policy. You know, state that has. Uh, that is rich in pollution intensive jobs. There may be some policies encouraging uh, encouraging it to transition from the pollution intensive jobs, pollution uh, intensive industry to green industry. Uh, could also that could that also be the case? You know, it certainly could be. That would that would make sense if you were a state and you were forward looking. If you were a policymaker and you were forward looking and realizing that you had a lot of fossil fuel jobs, that you would be anxious to be part of that transition. And I think that it has been the case with with some states. Um, with other states, you've seen some opposition to to renewable jobs. I mean, uh, uh, but yes, if if I were if I were a politician, that would be, <laughs> you know, a forward looking politician trying to think about my communities. That would be something that I would be would be on my radar screen. I mean, it's also interesting as far as state policies, and again, this is just a pattern in the data, but we see quite a bit of solar in the northeast in the area around Massachusetts, and uh, that's a little surprising because this, if you look at, we also show in the paper maps of where there's the most sun, and I can tell you that Massachusetts is not it as far <laughs> as the sunniest part of the, of the U.S., so plausibly the reason why there's so much solar there 
is uh, linked to local policies that are promoting promoting it. I see. Yeah, yeah, you can absolutely see on the map. And we, yeah, we were, so we were just talking about the map. But you, you can absolutely see that there are a surprising number of solar jobs in uh, certain areas of the country, right? And that's, you know, that is you know, demand-driven, right? So, I mean, a lot of that is, is you know, residential solar. That's, um, you know, that you have demand from consumers to uh, for residential and, and places like the Northeast and in places like California, so. Yeah, I see. So do you think geographically this fact will make it easier for fossil fuel workers to transition into green jobs? So let me say first, and I'll, I'll let uh, uh, you know Mark say more about that because I know he has some work in progress on this. But on a broad level, uh, some of my work has been looking into uh, people's job application patterns. And the big fact is that people really like to apply to jobs close to home. That's a, one of the big drivers of which jobs people prefer. Those are all close to home and about 80% of applications are sent within the same commuting zone. So this is an area where most people tend to work and commute. So the geography is very important in terms of general job availability. Uh, so therefore that is hopeful. However, I think we need to know more, you know, in terms of uh, uh, this is a helpful fact, but we need to know more about some of those transitions and perhaps uh, Mark can uh, uh, tell us more about what we know. Yeah, first I'll absolutely second what Ioana just said that, you know, I think anybody who has moved knows how painful that move can be uh, and that it's you know very costly for a number of reasons, both financially and personally, and also there's all sorts of reasons why people don't want to move. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people in academia move fairly often, um, but, you know, I, I think most people do really like to stay close to home. The, the numbers on that are, are pretty surprising. So, you know, I do think kind of targeted policies, this really does matter that, you know, if the jobs that we're creating that are in renewable energy are near where jobs are expected to be lost, that does have, I think, pretty important welfare consequences for, for, for workers and families. Uh, so let's, let's uh, getting back to um, uh, thinking about the transitions that are making. So uh, I, I do have some uh, some recent work. So you know, just to start out with, I think you know, the, the answer to that is that, yes, it is encouraging that a lot of these jobs are located um, near near a lot of the green jobs are located near where fossil fuel intensive jobs are. That's not true for all um, places, right? So if we think about, you know, if I if I look at the map that we have and of West Virginia, right? There's not a lot of green jobs in West Virginia that we captured. There's not a lot of uh, green jobs in Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, Appalachia, um, and those are areas with significant fossil fuel, particularly coal communities. Uh, so, you know, I think there are areas where this transition can happen easier. Um, there's also areas where I think this is uh, less likely to happen. Um, I've been working on some new research which looks at, uh, which actually identifies transitions using uh, data from uh, social profiles um, with Jisung Park, who's one of Joanna's uh, colleagues at UPenn. Uh, and um, we have seen a, a really big increase over time in workers moving from dirty to, from dirty from a dirty fossil a carbon intensive job directly to a renewable job. Um, however, that number is still relatively small. So if you look at all workers that leave the fossil fuel industry uh, or separate from a job in the in the fossil fuel industry, we're finding that right now only about one percent are going to, uh, directly to a to a green job, um, a lot of those workers are still staying within the fossil fuel industry. So a lot of the transitions that are happening for uh, for fossil fuel workers are still 
Uh, they're just going from one fossil fuel or dirty job to to another. Um, so I think we're we're hopeful that uh, as the number of green jobs grows, as the Inflation Reduction Act grows, that there will be more of these transitions. And if you look at kind of at the graph that we have, it is it is increasing rapidly. Um, and I think you know with the Inflation Reduction Act, I think that's going to continue. Another kind of positive thing that came out of uh, uh, some of this research is that, and this is not something that I didn't we did in the paper with Ioana, but um, we're seeing you know, these electric vehicle jobs and manufacturing jobs and kind of green manu green manufacturing are a place that a lot of workers are from the carbon intensive industry are moving into, and those are also expected to grow uh, considerably. So. Um, uh, I think that there is, uh, you know, right now we're still not seeing significant numbers of, of workers transitioning, um, but I think that especially kind of with the you know, green manufacturing coming on, I think that those skills are, are probably likely to align with some of the skills of uh, folks that are in the um, carbon intensive industries right now. Great. Thank you so much, Professor Mark Curtis. Uh, I think the information in your paper is very helpful for so many, and we really look forward to your future papers in this field. Uh, and that is for that is for today's forecast direct podcast at UCLA. And thank you so much, Professor uh, Mark Curtis and Professor Yona Marinescu for being here today. Thanks so much. It was thanks a so much for having us. Thank you so much. See you next time.